0: Today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Matthew's, or Jesus', excuse me, intriguing uh, childhood. And today, we're going to look at one of my favorite historical figures, John the Baptist, uh, and eight qualities that surround John the Baptist. He's he's a hard hitting character, but certainly, and I can believe I can show you, that he loved those that he spoke with. It was a, a tough message, but it was to lead to repentance. And repentance is good for everyone. It's good for us today. Now, our culture, uh, from what we're taught, we need to love ourselves more and, and caress ourselves and think nice thoughts. And you know what? Repentance needs to be there because we need to see our flaws and our faults so that we can uh, get, have a closer relationship with our God. And I'm going to compare the actions of some or statements of some ministers and evangelists and uh, different men of God today and see how we measure up to what John the Baptist taught. So, before we jump in, between Matthew chapters 2 and 3, Luke chapter 2 fills in some more events about Jesus' youth uh, and prophecies that surround Jesus, and the incident in the temple when Jesus was 12 years old, and his parents, you know, everybody with the caravan started leaving Jerusalem, and they realized they couldn't find Jesus at 12 years old, so they turned back around, and they found him in the temple, having these incredible, weighty theological discussions with the teachers, and making God's law simple to understand, Uh, since Jesus said, I I need to be about my father's business. And you know what? John the Baptist was about his father's business, and we need to be about our father's business. So let's jump in. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Now I'm going to jump to a different scripture because I want to, you know, Luke, Matthew's giving us what we need to hear of what John did. But I want to really uh, blow up this prophecy a little bit more uh, in Isaiah. And Luke really gives the whole, the whole part of it. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, understand, uh, John wasn't going out there sobbing with a handkerchief saying, oh, you've got to repent. The word is understood as more of a lowing, of the lowing of an ox. It was a, a, a powerful, strong Message. It was like the town crier. So our understanding of crying has to be uh, tailored a little bit here. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough will be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins." We notice a few things we know that the bible tells us that john the baptist was filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb this was a transitional period between the old and the new testament some have said that john was the last of the old testament prophets even though we're reading the new testament but this was the bridge between the law and grace which superseded that this was the bridge between all the prophecies of the messiah and the fulfillment of the Messiah. Messiah. As a matter of fact, Jesus says later that of all those born among women, John the Baptist is the greatest. Right? So this is a very something that we really need to pay attention to. It just wasn't some guy um, crying out in the wilderness in the beginning of the chapter and then we get on to all the different things later on. It was an important message that he had to preach. Number one, the first thing, the first characteristic is he preaches repentance prior to being introduced to the kingdom of heaven embodied in Jesus Christ. He wanted them to understand what they were going to be faced with in Jesus Christ. This was no mere man that we're dealing with. Now, I've heard criticism about altar calls, and um, I I actually would agree with that criticism if it's not explained right. And what does that mean? Usually at the end of our service, we'll ask somebody if they want to come up and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, it's not a ritual, it's not a tradition, it is a heart uh, issue and understanding, and that has to be made clear. See, The best way to understand repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior and a change of action. Understand? It's not, I'm sorry. We hear a lot of I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I offend somebody. I'm sorry. I rip you off. I'm sorry. It's okay now. You know, (laughs) Well, what about my $400? I'm sorry. God doesn't call us to be sorry. He calls us to repent. So action has to follow that. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound crazy and shocking, but you don't come to Christ without repenting. And if you do, you're a polytheist. What? I believe in many gods? No, I just believe in God. You see, if you're walking along the path of life and you're confronted with God, Jesus, or who he is, And you continue your self-directed path and say, that's nice, Jesus. He's the way to heaven. Let me take a little Jesus statue, put him in my curio cabinet with the God of me and my self-directed life and everything that I'm already doing and the sins that I'm harboring. And, you know, it'll be like a cute little curio cabinet. That's polytheism. When we repent, we are faced with Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word, and we have a change of mind and heart and realize this is right. This is what I've been searching for all my life. This is what I need. There's no entrance into heaven without this. And we have a change of action and behaviors. It's very important to understand. I want to read Luke 17, two verses, three through four. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's a conditional statement. There's conditional statements in the English, if then. And there's conditional statements in the Greek. For and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, "I repent," you shall forgive him. Now, liberal theology would just teach, and this is usually when a politician uh, does something wrong, and, and they say, "Well, you know, you guys are Christians; you should just forgive it and let it go." But the Bible tells us that there needs to be repentance before forgiveness. That's shocking to, to many, maybe even here today, that. And here's the problem. You know, if, if John, I have John babysit my kid, and then I come home and his kid's all black and blue, you know what I'm saying? And John goes, Sorry. Um, am I going to be quick to have him next Saturday babysit my kid? That would be crazy. That's like putting something good on a bad foundation. In order for me to really understand that, that he would even consider watching my kid and of course we know John wouldn't do that for the record, a very upstanding man. Uh, there needs to be repentance. there needs to be a change in behavior and actions. We really need to understand, or he needs to understand, that there has to be change. See, the problem in American Christian, uh, Christianity is that there's a lot of bad foundations, and because of those bad foundations, the first and primary relationship between us and our God is hurting. We're trying to put something good on something bad. And also, our secondary relationships with those that we love and, and those brothers and sisters in the Lord are also hurting because of these bad foundations. There must be repentance. Now, John was, or Matthew was quoting Isaiah 40 when speaking about John the Baptist. Now, in, contest, or in context at the time, God was leading his people out of the Babylonian captivity and their hearts should have been right with God. Prepare the way of the Lord. However, in John's day, another fulfillment of that prophecy or that scripture, uh, they were to be the people were to be led out of spiritual captivity to sin's enslavement. So the first time it was the Babylonians. Who who doesn't want to be free when they're captive? Everybody wants to be free. However, sometimes we forget that sin is a hard taskmaster, and sin can enslave us. And there are many who are self-deceived and stuck in their sin and don't even know that they're in bondage. And they need to be freed. So there's that fulfillment. And that's available today, right now. Straight paths that are uh, crooked, filling valleys that are low, leveling mountains and smoothing roughness doesn't come without pain, effort, and sometimes resistance. It's not easy to tell a person that they're in sin. And sometimes it's not easy to pick up this book as a mirror to our souls, look at what the Bible says and realize, gee, I don't look so good. As a mirror, I fall short. So it it can be painful to try to speak to someone that you love about their sin, and it also can be very painful to come to the conclusion that we ourselves have sinned and need to change. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God, which is the embodiment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, not, not everyone lay hold of that, but they certainly got to see that salvation. The second part... About this is that uh, Luke, or excuse me, John the Baptist had elderly pa- parents, and we see that in Luke's gospel. And they may have died very possibly while he was growing up. And it does appear that he was raised by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. And we see different scriptures that tell us that. Now, Luke 1:15 tells us that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, which means he was consecrated, which means he was set apart for the service of God. And that was important. He was isolated, really, from society for a long time. And then he's introduced into society. Why? Because John had a very unpopular message to preach. Imagine today. That's why many preachers won't preach about hell. They won't preach about They don't want to offend anybody. You know, you've got to put a new wing on the church. So I've got to keep everybody happy so the cash money keeps flowing in. And that's the truth, sadly enough. So they're not going to preach this kind of stuff. They want everybody to be happy every Sunday and never any hint of a downer of a message. But not John. He was probably immune to compromise, to bias, to favors, to the good old boys club, right? Uh, popularity contests. Probably if there was Facebook back then that John wouldn't have any Facebook friends, maybe only Jesus, you know? <laughs> Where, would it be? Where would his BFFs be, right? <laughs> so you've got to look back a little bit. But verse 4, and John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. His clothes, his ways, uh, if you're a student of the Bible, it'll click to you. Sounds like Elijah the prophet back in the Old Testament Uh, Luke one seventeen, referring back to Malachi's prophecy, said that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he had his honey, good for carbs. He had his locusts, good for protein, the ultimate power bar. You know, if you can get past the crunchy legs, I'm sure everything would be fine. (laughs) But John's baptism, you're thinking about it. Maybe Friday wouldn't be bad, but symbolic of inward repentance even today our baptism when we baptize when someone gets baptized it is a an outward expression of the inward change that's going on inside of us and then we're going to look at Jesus's baptism which was much more powerful we'll get to that in a few verses now there is something to John taking the people out of the decadent hypocritical fast-paced society and bringing them into the wilderness Right? bringing them now to a solitary place to be alone with God. And we can sometimes, or we should sometimes, uh, look at that in our own society, just to get away from the pretentiousness of our culture, put the cell phone down, and just go outside, be alone somewhere, and pray. Uh, just be alone with God and talk to God. I mean, there is really a peace that washes over you because the distractions are minimized. Everything happens for a reason when we read the scripture. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, now these were the religious teachers of the day, these guys, it was a marriage of church and state. Unfortunately, the church was corrupt and the state was corrupt. But what happened here was these guys were in the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over the Jewish people. Now watch what he says to them. (laughs) Certainly doesn't make any friends off the bat. He said to them, Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham, even from these stones. And now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I want to be this guy when I grow up. (laughs) He wasn't afraid to call out sin or to expose hypocrisy. And he wasn't afraid of the backlash. Now, I'm going to be critical, and I'm going to name names, and I have the transcript, so if you get upset with me, I can show you where things are said and where things are wrong. But I'm also going to criticize myself as I go through this. So I'm not going to leave that, that out. And we're just going to compare ministers today, evangelist preachers, leaders, with what John the Baptist's message says. So the third point about John was he was not wishy-washy. There's too much wishy-washiness in Christianity today. No backbone. Ministers are afraid to lose these empires that they've built—multi-million-dollar empires. Now, I've picked on Joel Osteen before, but I have read the transcripts, and you know, every once in a while, I'll watch and just see—you know, maybe he's changed. He hasn't changed. I watched them on TV and he's preaching this message and, you know, God wants you to be happy, wants you to be successful, speaks about a friend who built a multi-million dollar corporation and that's his example of success. That's him. And then I'm like, why does he do that? And then the camera, just as I was thinking that, the camera panned back and you see over him this, not like this, it's a, it looks like a million dollar uh, multimedia thing with his face on it. Huge like hundreds of feet across, and all the seats, and all the, the stadium. And I'm thinking, he's got to keep those people happy. Because if he starts preaching the truth, maybe half of them will leave, and he might go bankrupt. These are gummy bear preachers, and that's all I could think of. They're sweet, you know, they're crunchy, they're, they're yummy. <laughs> Just only I think of this weird stuff, gummy bears, you know. I love those gummy bears. But they're sweet, and, but there's really not a whole lot of substance to them. Now, let me contrast that with something serious. There's a book that we have in our library, and you can borrow it, called The Pastor's Barracks. As I read this book, I started looking at history. I thought I knew everything there was to know about World War II, but apparently I don't. And this is a guy uh, named Christian Rieger, who was a pastor back during the Nazi Germany. And what happened was Hitler was very into, which is also making a resurgence today, uh, replacement theology which basically Hitler wanted to take, he wanted to control the churches and wanted all the pastors to follow him. Uh, he wanted to control everybody, of course, so things would go more smoothly for him. So what he did was he um, uh, put these, these ministers or these heads of the churches and he tried to do it, uh, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to remove the entire Old Testament from the Bible. Uh, he wanted to say that, you know, replacement theology, which means that the Jews, Israel, no longer, the promises fulfilled now apply to the church, we've replaced them. So you can see how the anti-Semitism started to arise. But did you know in Dachau, which is South Germany, in the concentration camp, that 10% of the, in, of the, uh, the inmates in Dachau were pastors? And it, How many people knew that? I didn't. 10%. And many of them died and many of them were starved to death. Why? Because while the phony balonies were out there uh, going in line with Nazi theology from their pulpits and telling the people what they wanted to hear, and they didn't want to lose their empires, these guys, thousands of them, said, no way, this is wrong. Wake up, people. And they were removed from their pulpits and, t- and sent to the internment camps. What are we doing today? Were we building empires, or were we preaching the truth? You know, we got to really wake up to this stuff. Again, there's going to be no sacred cows here today. Um, Jer- the late Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson... David Wilkerson have all said something from their pulpits to the media and have had to take it back. If God really told you to say something, if I say God told me, which I probably never do here, except on very rare occasions, then stand by it. Usually when the media comes back and says, there's a public uh, backlash about what you said, then they start to cower. They start to recant what they said. Well, either you heard from God or you didn't. Those are the only two choices. And if you heard from God... You need to get a backbone and say, This is what I heard, and this is what I believe, and this is what I'm standing on. There's nothing worse than titular heads of Christianity going on TV and saying something, and then two days later getting back on TV and saying, Well, I'm not really sure if I heard from God. Let me get back on the bat phone and say, God, did you really say that? <laughs> Balaam did that. You know? Balak said, Curse the Jews. Well, I went to God and he said, I can't curse the Jews. Well, look at all this money I'm going to give you hold on a second, hold that thought, don't take that away, let me go back and talk to God again, and sure enough, he did. And God said, I said what I said, and I'm not changing my mind. Some have come to me and said, you know what, you say some things from the pulpit, and that's pretty brave. So let me poke a little bit at myself. This is why we have a struggle with the heat in this building. This is why I keep it down. There's some things that I preach, I'm up here and I'm sweating. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I don't wear a T-shirt under this, you know what I'm saying? But I don't apologize for what I say if it comes from God's word. I'll say that now. That doesn't mean that I don't want to be liked inside. It doesn't mean that every man, especially every leader or public speaker, doesn't want the message that he's giving, no matter what it is, to be received. Who wants to do public speaking and have everybody hate what the guy had to say and then make a living out of that? That could be quite depressing. So the point is that I may, you know, and again, I I used to say, well, I'm sorry, but this is what the word says. I won't say that anymore. Because this is what the word says, and I agree with it. I'm not separating myself. I'm in line with what God says in his word. However, in our hearts, men want to be popular. And that's just the sin of, of self-preservation. Now, there's a difference between being friendly, being social, being courteous, being polite, and then being popular. That's something completely different. Because the other one is, is of the flesh. All right, understand that. Fourth point is John didn't compromise. John didn't compromise. I believe it was no mistake and no uh, you know, coincidence that God had set John up in the family at the time period and then sent him out into the wilderness to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit alone. Because when he went out into society, he, he didn't compromise. I'll say this, I have the transcripts. <laughs> Billy Graham's preaching went soft decades ago. His, his interviews in the last few decades, his preaching, there's, there's nothing in it. It's hollow. Because he's made too many friends with presidents, popes, kings, uh, religious leaders. And what happens is when you start to make friends with the world, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be courteous and polite and try to win them to Christ, but to, in, in, a, in a way that it's, was not healthy. And then what happens was when he's asked certain questions in interviews, he can't answer the question or he fluffs it off because he can't offend all those friends that he's made in the world. It is what it is. Here's the problem in the Christian culture. We want to give each other a pass and then throw stones at the unregenerate world from the pulpit. Oh, those atheists. Oh, the homosexuals. Oh, this. And then give ourselves a pass. That's wrong. It should be the other way around. How can we hold the world to a standard that we can't hold ourselves to? Something's a little backwards there. We need to be a little bit more critical of ourselves and try to win the world over to Christ and show them that we're not hypocritical. So I think it needs to be flipped a little bit. We need to hold our own a little bit more accountable. If we're sold out for Christ, we don't compromise. We have a backbone, and we do what's right, and that's more important than popularity. So today I'm just doing this in the spirit of John the Baptist. Uh, (laughs) Verse 9. The religious leaders and the self-deceived of society relied on their genealogy. He says, don't think that... You know we're sons of. You can say I'm son of Abraham, and that's why I've got privilege, and uh, I don't need to hear this. But those pagan Romans, but they really need to hear the message. John came really first, and he and he focused a lot on the leaders of Israel and the corruption there, and they must have been very offended by that. So John said, "Listen, God can raise up uh, sons of Abraham from these stones. Sure, he could do that." In the triumphal entry, when they were praising Jesus as the Messiah, and the religious leader says, You know, you need to tell them to be quiet. Jesus says, If they're quiet, God can get the stones to cry out uh, in this procession that's going on. So God can do anything He wants to do. But privilege is not going to save us. What are you relying on? Is it your denomination? Is it the fact that we're Americans? And America is basically a Christian nation. You know, you you follow the logic. Therefore, I'm saved. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Imagine how enraged these religious leaders must have felt, but many of them were convicted. The Bible tells us that some of the Sanhedrin came to Christ, and in Acts 6 and 7, many of the priests came to Christ. So maybe they were offended initially, but their hearts started to change and soften towards the message of salvation. And he says this to them, bear fruits of repentance. Don't just say you're changed, show that you're changed. Amen, right? Show that you're changed. Show that you mean it. Again, the prodigal son, one of my favorite portions of scripture because there was true repentance in there. So here's this young, gu- young guy, he's got an older brother, and he says to his father, you know what, I just want my inheritance now. And his father gives me the inheritance, and he leaves the house, and he goes out there, and he starts blowing his money on all kinds of fleshly pursuits, finds himself in a destitute position, he's out of money, he's, he's just bankrupt uh, physically, uh, financially, and also morally and spiritually, and he, he's he now uh, seeing the pigs eating pig pods, these carob pods, and, and he just was longing to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. So he comes to the end of himself and he says... You know, and I'm throwing in a little uh, paraphrase in here, but he basically says that, what am I doing? You know, what have I done to my life? I've ruined it. You know, how many of my father's servants are doing much better than I am right now? So he says, I'm going to write a letter of apology and say, I'm sorry, dad, take me back into the house, give me another inheritance. No, that's not how the story goes. He says, this is what I will do. Not what I will say. This is what, and he did do it. He said, I'm going to go to my father and say, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Listen, I'll work Like your servants, I just want to be one of the servants. You got got an opening for me, and he went to his father. And that's what he did. See, there was action that followed the heart change. We all understand what repentance is—that action that follows the heart change. It's very important. Now I'm going to jump to Luke three, because Luke, again, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—different perspectives, different men no discrepancies. Some added more of the uh, account and uh, brought out more of what was said, whereas the other person said, no, I don't need that. I'm going to focus more in this area. John 21 says, Jesus did so much that all the books in the world couldn't be filled with Jesus's life. So they were selective about what they picked out. But you get to see the picture from four different perspectives. So here's Luke. In Luke chapter 3, speaking about this situation, he adds this, So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Jump to verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod the king at the time, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So John offended everyone, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the monarchy, and it cost him his life. I mean, he had a, you know, he, he was on the scene, everybody knew who he was, but if, even if in his mind he got a hint of stardom, which I don't believe John did, his career was cut very short because of his preaching the truth. Now understand this, the fifth point about John, he didn't offend for the sake of offending, and I've seen this in preaching too. It's a style where you just offend people. You just, well, they need to have some conviction today, so you slam everybody. I don't see that here. Uh, that's the other end, you know, there's the one end of, of not preaching anything hard, and then there's the other end of the spectrum where it's a style of just castigating people. And I, I, don't, I don't see that in the scripture. So he didn't offend for the sake of offending. And he addresses a multitude of issues here, generosity, the social issues, greed, abuse of authority, bullying, lying, adultery, it's all in there. But he wanted them to clean out their hearts and make a change to accept Jesus as the Messiah to accept Christ. And that was important because he was God in the flesh, Jesus. So, you know, it, it's really an offense to God. Again, like I said before, to just hold on to all that junk. And it doesn't mean that, listen, sanctification is a process. When, you, when I came to the cross, some things went quickly. You know, they just, I just stopped doing them. Other things I'm still struggling with, you know what I'm saying? So just transparency from the pulpit. We're not perfect But understand that you're willing to give up as much as you can that brings you down and corrupts you so that you could receive more of him. There's that sanctification, that you want to be filled more with the Spirit, less of the world and less of myself. Empty vessels, clean out the junk so that you can be more filled up with what God has. And there's an expression that we use, those empty vessels. But here's the question. What would John say if he was here today in our society? He probably would get arrested for not having a permit. That's first of all. (laughs) But what would he say to our church? What would he say to me? What would he say to you? And will we listen to him or, or just you know, dismiss him as some rambling madman? What are we involved in that's hindering our relationship with the Lord? As I ask that question, think about that. Think about my life. What is hindering my relationship with the Lord right now in this season of my life, this week? It's, it's a good question to ask. And I, and I can promise you and assure you that if we clean ourselves out, the relationship with our Lord will be so much more fruitful. You know, a lot of Christians will come and and they want to come to counseling and they, they have, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they have questions, but we counsel from the scripture and, you know, they have to be willing to do what the Bible says, to clean out the junk and to receive God's word and do what it says. That's important. Because no man, not me, not any of the pastors here or elders or whoever, is going to be able to solve your problems. You know, it has to be right with the Lord. We can direct you in the right place, but we're not the ones that do it. It's he who does it. Verse 10 in Matthew, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is sure. Heaven or hell, make a choice. I've done a study because there are some cults that don't believe in eternal punishment. They don't believe in hell. There are some ministers that uh, may believe in hell, but they don't want to offend and, and kind of hurt anybody's feelings on a Sunday morning. But I will say this. Any pastor, minister, preacher that refuses to preach, when appropriate, the reality of hell is a coward. And I will add a deceiver. It's a deceiver. If you have an incurable disease and and I'm a doctor and you come into my office and I see the results and, you know, I don't want you to have a bad day, so I I just look at the results and go, oh, we'll give you some antibiotics, you're sick, you'll be fine in a few weeks. What kind of doctor am I? You should revoke my license and put me in jail. There is a reality of hell and judgment and we don't want anybody to go there and John didn't want anybody to go there, so he made sure they understood that. The axe is laid at the root. Now, in society at that time, the tree was bad. Jesus spoke about the fig tree, and he cursed the fig tree that didn't produce fruit, and, and of course there was symbolism there. But the root was the hypocritical religious system at the time, and the axe was laid at the root. And we know in 70 AD that that whole system was destroyed by the Romans under Titus. It was a very sad time in history, but judgment was coming. How, don't, but don't miss this, that you know, all of us will face judgment if we're not under the blood So, again, this might have been very offensive because uh, the prevailing attitude was the Gentiles, the Romans, they needed repentance and salvation, but the Jewish people didn't. and, And John came to dispel that myth. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All, all that John the Baptist could do was have a, a symbolic baptism. He, had, he didn't have that power to do what Jesus had, or it wasn't given to him by God at that particular point. So uh, Jesus, though, had the power. Now we're looking at Jesus' baptism. Number one, to impart, impart the Holy Spirit, the rivers of living water. He who believes in Jesus, rivers of, torrents of living water will flow from, from out them, right? And just will be overflowed with what God has. But he also had the power, Jesus, for future fulfillment to sit in judgment. Now, the winnowing fork or the winnowing fan, it was really like a, you know, they had these, these things set up and, and they would, on higher elevations, they would have, um, it was like a, a structure with, with openings on the side, huge openings, and they would uh, take the wheat and the wheat had a usable part and chaff, which was unusable. The usable part would be used to be made into breads and different things that could sustain the people. But the chaff was just good enough to be kind of gathered together and burned, and they could get energy from that, but it was destroyed. Now, what the winnowing fork did was you would have the wheat, and and when there was a breeze, there would usually be a breeze at the higher elevations, they would uh, put the fork into the wheat and throw it up in the air, and the lighter chaff, because it was no substance to it, Right, the the symbolism, was blown away. And the the kernels or the usable part would fall to the ground and it was used to sustain the people. So he basically says that at one time, listen, today, churches, uh, neighborhoods, marriages, there are those who are unregenerate and there are those who, who are regenerate. And there will be a point in time where God will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, those on my right hand, he says, from those on my left hand. So my question is, where do you sit right now? Are you the good wheat and the good grain that falls to the ground and God can use it? Or are you the chaff? There's no substance. There's no weight to it. It blows away and all its good is to be burned into the fire. These are questions that we, that we need to ask ourselves. When we are thrown up into the air from that winnowing fork, how are we going to come down? Are we going to be blown away? Or are we going to be back with the other kernels of good wheat that the Father can use? unquenchable. I just like to play with etymology of words. Uh, the word actually unquenchable is asbestos. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's cool. So <laughs> it just, I don't know, I just find it fun. Uh, it's a weird thing. But uh, what we do is we take that word asbestos in the Greek and transliterate it, transliterate it into the English. So it's, it's maintained in its, in its purest form. And what that is to describe is Something that cannot be destroyed. So here's the irony. We use it today to, des- to describe something that can't be destroyed by heat. But the word back then meant that it was undestroyable fire. That fire was going to continue for eternity, continue with its heat and its fervor. We look at our sun and the scientists will tell us in how many years it can burn out because the sun only has so much usable energy. This fire is unquenchable. It will never go out. I, and honestly, John didn't want anybody to be there. I don't want anybody to be there. So I'm going to preach this stuff. And if it, if it, you know, if it, it convicts you or you, you're moved or um, you have more questions, that's a good thing. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John to Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him. The only time that John ever opposed Jesus because, like you know, I guess he I don't know what he was thinking, knowing the Son of God, of course he knows it's going to be right, but John knew what his baptism was for, and he didn't want Jesus to be baptized because he was Jesus was perfect. And he said, I have need to be baptized by you, meaning Jesus, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So again, John tried to prevent Jesus knowing that he was preparing these unruly hearts to receive the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. And then Jesus comes to him and, wait a minute, maybe you didn't understand, this, this baptism isn't for you. Just... Permitted to be so for now. Jesus, again, baptism has symbolism to it. And in, in, in the other part of why we're baptized is why Jesus was baptized. Jesus went into the water to symbolize his death, burial, and resurrection out of the water, resurrection from, from the tomb. So there was that other symbolism part of it. And some have even said that, uh, that the priests, before they started their ministry, had, there was a laver and they would wash. It was a symbolism. They would wash themselves. So some have suspected that Jesus, being the priest, the high priest, was, came in for a ceremonial washing. So you can look at all the symbolism, but understand that this is Christ's inauguration. So you see his whole life, his childhood, things that have happened, but here is the kickoff. Here is the inauguration to Jesus' everyday ministry for three-plus years. You know, There's the Son, there's the, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's the Father. So those who don't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's all over the Scripture. So they're, all three of them are in harmony. It's really cool. Next week, we're going to see what happens right after his inauguration. Uh, I want to read John, just John's Gospel, uh, just a few verses, uh, chapter 1, uh, 35 through 37. And I just love putting everything... That's just the way my mind works. I like to put everything in a chronological time order. Uh, so... John has his disciples, John the Baptist. They're flocking to him. They know he's a man of God. And it says again, The next day John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. This was another quality of John, that he never took glory for himself. He always gave it to Christ. He said, He, Jesus, must increase while I must decrease in importance. And his own disciples that he probably loved and walked with him for some time, they just walked from John to Jesus. There's a transition, not a problem. Be careful of any minister or any preacher who tries to give the glory to themselves. Run as fast as you can. That's me, and that happens, run for me, you know? Because the bottom line is, here's how ministers need to be, or preachers or pastors need to be in harmony. We all work together for the kingdom. We may have disagreements. We may have disagreements in style. We may have disagreements in how we open up God's word. We may have disagreements in church government. That's not what unites us. Who cares? There's other churches do better things than we do in some respects, and maybe we can learn from them. Maybe they can learn from us. But the bottom line is, what's supposed to unite us is the fact that we're glued together in Christ, right? Amen. So John didn't say, hey, guys, don't, don't go over there. Just hang out with me a few more weeks. You know, I, I could really use the help around here. He let them go. So what, you, what should unite us as people of God is the fact that Christ is the glue, and that's what you see here. Three more points about John the Baptist before we close in prayer. Inherent in John's style was an honesty. And, and quite fran- frankly, I prefer honesty over sneakiness. You know, if I do something wrong, I would like somebody to come to me respectfully <laughs> and uh, just say, hey, I, this is what you said, or, you know, did you mean this because, you know, I don't agree with that or whatever. That's fine. You know, we can have that discussion. You know, if, I, if I'm out there and, uh, you know, I'm greeting a bunch of people and, and you know, my breath is offensive. Hand me a piece of gum. You know, do it quietly. Right? <laughs> Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> I, now I know I have some comedians here. I know before the end of the day, I'm going to have ten sticks of gum in my pocket, <laughs> and you're one of them. <laughs> the seventh point about John: John wasn't a fear mongerer. He was stern. And, and here's the deal: with what John needed to say, he could he could bring them to to have that fear because this was about. There's two things that we should be in fear of, and, and everything else really not. Number one is persistent and unrepentant sin. But the irony is those in that are usually self-deceived and don't see their, their, uh, their, their sin. Two is continual rejection of the only way to salvation. Uh, you know, I, I'm thankful that God is merciful to me because I know that I can count a bunch of times that I, I was preached the truth before I was saved and I, I didn't go, I didn't turn to it. And I'm so glad that you know he gave me some more chances. But if you look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh was surrounded by the things of God. He had all these chances kept hardening his heart. And Pharaoh eventually kept him in that state and solidified him there to show his power and his glory. So be careful of not being like a Pharaoh because where he's been for the last few thousand years is not a good place if he didn't repent. So those are the only only things. Jesus said, don't fear the one that after he takes the body... He can do nothing to you. Even Satan and the demons. Do they have the power to do that if God allows them? Yeah. Can a a robber or a murderer do that? Yeah. But after that, there's nothing they can do to you. If you're in Christ, you're going right there. You're, You're walking from one door through another. But fear the one after he can take the body has the power to cast you into hell. So the only fear, fear should be put in the right place. And that's where John had it. And again, i I seen, and (laughs) I'm just going to mention another name. And again, I'm not saying these guys are evil men, but I don't agree with this. Glenn Beck, you know, here's a guy who, he does his homework. He really does his research. But honestly, to me, he's a, the sky is falling, the sky is falling type of guy. And I think that's how he gets his following. And you you can, listen, we can disagree about this stuff. But I don't agree with any person, with any cause or any subject that uses fear to get others to follow them. I don't, I don't agree with it. You know, a, a, a leader, a good leader should maintain a calm presence uh, to the ones that they're leading. I think that's a, a good leader. The eighth uh, point, causes. John had a cause. His cause was all about the Lord. Today it's in vogue to have a cause, so be, to be a lightning rod for a particular issue. Uh, we had, when we were in the school, we had a few that had these causes, and they actually were getting little followings with their causes. They eventually left, but when I would con- confront them about the Bible, they didn't know their Bible that well. Their family life wasn't in order, and they, they refused accountability. But they had a cause. People followed them. People follow anybody. Be careful of causes. If you're putting too much time, energy, passion, and love into it, what defines you? What defines me? Just think about that for a moment. What defines me? What is it? What's your cause? Do I put too much time, energy, love, and passion in that cause and neglect the things of God? There's nothing impressive about that as a believer. What defines us should be who we are in Christ. So here we go. We, have at the end of, we look at this at the end, and we see that every believer can learn from these eight points. And it say, well, that's for you. You're the preacher. This is about leaders. No, it isn't. It's about all of us. There's something that we can learn from these eight points and characteristics. And the question is, are we sold out for Christ? Because if I look at John the Baptist's life, he was. Now, as we go further into the scripture, we're going to see that he had a moment of, of difficulty, and we're going to work through that. And, and he asked Jesus about it. That's the best place to go when you have difficulty, to go to the cross, to ask the Lord. So let's look at these things and uh, just see how we can be more sold out for Christ like John the Baptist was. Let's pray.